You're listening to Once, episode 194, Sympathy for the DeVille. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Aaron, And I'm Jacqueline. And Jeremy couldn't make it this night, but we are happy to have Jacqueline joining us. This has been an interesting episode with Once Upon a Time, and I feel like it's two backstories in one. Do you guys get that impression too? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, same. But at the same time, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. No, this is really... Cruella's backstory. So that leads me to think we may still get Isaac's backstory. I think there's something more to tell about him. We don't know when he was chosen to be the author or anything about his family life. So yeah, I think there might be a story there. So let's dig into the story starting with the past. When young Cruella was running away, I think we all had that first thought of, oh, this is the mother's fault or like the mother is the one with the magic. She's controlling the dogs. But everything we see about the mother in this episode is really she's just a great dog trainer. I I really think no magic involved. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that. My first thought was actually Alice in Wonderland for this um, scene when she's running through the forest. But then obviously we found out that it was Cruella, but the blue dress and the time period, it all reminded me of that. And, you know, they've been teasing us with a lot of Alice in Wonderland stuff this season. So I thought maybe we were going to get to see that. Well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that, Aaron, because the actress who played young Cruella, Millie Wilkinson, actually played Alice's daughter in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. No in that way. series fina- Yeah, in the series finale, and they lived... Didn't the same actress then also play young Alice or no? I think it was a different actress for young Alice, but she definitely played her daughter. Okay. That's funny. Yeah. She did a really good job in this episode. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, we only got to see her for those couple brief things, but we did get to learn, I think, a lot about the mother's approach to parenting. It's it's very (laughs) much just like dog training where she expects to give a command and for it to be obeyed, just like you would with a dog, you know, sit and the dog sits and, you know, good dog, good boo-boo and all of that. But that's <laughs> not the way it works with kids. It's about a relationship more. I mean, yes, there is still the need for obedience and commands, but you don't just lock a kid in a tower and expect <laughs> them to obey your commands. Good parenting advice. <laughs> Courtesy of Once Podcast at OnePodcast.com. Well, so Cruella is like this this Cinderella of sorts, and as well as Sleeping Beauty in a certain way. But when Isaac comes onto the scene, I think that at this point, he is fulfilling the normal author job. Going out and collecting stories. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because he said that he's looking for those interesting stories. It's odd that he ended up here because there is no magic in this house. There's nothing about this story that involves magic. He's the one that brought magic to this story. Yeah. I'm wondering if he's even the author yet at this point. Like he is an author. He's more like a reporter. And then he has this magical pen. But he seems very well versed in what he needs to know to become the author. Maybe that's kind of where he's 
going with this. That was my first thought is like, oh, he's not the author yet. He did say a little bit later that it was his job to go around between realms and record stories. That's true. Well, you know what it (laughs) reminded me of? It reminded me of the Grimm brothers, like the historical Grimm brothers. That's what they did. They went around and they collected interesting folk mythologies from people and they recorded them down and just, you know, passed them off and they became these fairy tales that we all know. So I kind of think that he is the author at this point and I think he is doing what the author is supposed to be doing, not what he, Isaac, will eventually do, which is manipulate people. Yeah. And I think it's pretty fair to say of the Grimm brothers that some of those stories may have been manipulated to teach lessons, right? Because a lot of those stories were told and created to teach lessons, whereas it seems like Isaac is like, oh, there's no lesson here. I better make uh, <laughs> make one. <laughs> I don't understand how he got to fictional 1920s London. Does anyone else know how? Well, I would guess that because it is a magical realm, like he had no problem bringing magic to a person in that realm. It has some magic. Like think back to the different realms that Jefferson talked about in season one. And he said there are those with magic and those without magic. I think this is one where it is a magical realm where time is basically frozen or the passage of time that is, or however, you know, time doesn't change. It's locked in time. That's the way to put it. Mm -hmm. And he even said that. And so this is fictional London, really, but it's a realm that is still connected then to all the other magical realms. So maybe he has the ability to jump between realms himself. He can probably just write himself into the other realm. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool. His magic reminds me a little bit of Peter Pan's magic, where it's very much, remember with Peter Pan's magic, he could just imagine something and it happened. Either he had something or... It was all limited only by his imagination. And here it's the same kind of magic with Isaac, but instead of imagining it, he has to write it down. So I could see him doing something like saying, uh, you know, the author found himself or Isaac found himself in fictional London or whatever they call this realm. And then poof, (laughs) he's there. I think that's the way that he got the key up to Cruella's window is that he just wrote it into his book. And that's how he wields magic is the pen is mightier than the sword. That makes me wonder if we really will get a backstory then, because there's so much they could do with this, showing us how the author is trained in all this. I mean, I'm assuming they don't just give him a pen and a book and say, now go record. You know, is there like author school? Did he have to train under (laughs) somebody or something in order to know how to do all this? Because how do you know which realms you can go to? Or what are the laws in each realm? How does he know all this? He has to learn it from somewhere. Did he go to Hogwarts? (laughs) I think he probably did. He probably did. (laughs) Magic ink and stuff. And was he ever in love? Because he seemed quite defensive when Cruella's mother said something about, you've never been in love. Now, that could be the defensiveness of, now, wait a minute, how dare you say that? But yeah, you're right. Or it could be the defensiveness of, yes, I was. How dare you say I haven't been, but it just ended badly in some way. There are some cool little Easter eggs going on here. Just even in the tower when Cruella is locked up and she's listening to the music, the music playing on the radio, yeah, it's a little ironic. It's Cruella de Vil, and that (laughs) song was written for 101 Dalmatians, the Disney movie. And in that movie, the way that the song is written is that it's the husband's 
teasing his wife about her high school friend, which is Cruella, and he comes up with the song that becomes his great big hit. Well, here in Once Upon a Time, the song is called The Toast of Beak Street, and it's played (laughs) from Murray Club, and Murray Club is where they go in just a couple scenes when they're going out on their night out. And so this uh, Murray Club actually does exist in London, and it's in Beak Street, London. So it all ties together quite nicely. Well, except for this is fictional. (laughs) See, no, that actually raises a lot of problems for me, which I guess I'm going to get to when we get to the next scene, which is the world building they've been doing in this episode and how it kind of threw me for a lot of loops. Well, let's talk about that then. Because I don't understand how it's always been 1920 in this land. I mean, if the land is frozen, that's fine. But when did this world pop into existence? Did it pop into existence the minute the our world, the real world, hit 1920? Or how can it be 1920 in this fictional London when it's only like 1900 in the real world? Because... Everything in this world is very iconic to the 1920s. She was a flapper. They've got the the drink hall, the sort of, you know, the music. Everything screamed the roaring 1920s flapper age. But if this realm has existed for centuries, like all the other realms, how could it possibly be the 1920s? That's a good question. Maybe that's where the authors come in, is maybe the authors have not only the power to record stories, but to create worlds. Kind of like if you've seen the video game Myst and all of its sequels, it's based on a basic idea that writing a book creates a world and you travel to worlds through these books. And that kind of connects poetically with what a book does or reading a book does, where it transports you to different worlds, uh, you know, metaphorically. So maybe it's something that an author in whatever world is creating these other worlds when he writes a story. So yeah, at some point, like before 1920, this fictional London didn't exist, perhaps. In what way are all of those iconic things of the 1920s that Jacqueline mentioned, in what way were those created in our reality? Like they were created by, like it's the same as how culture is created now, like influential people. And it's almost like an author kind of dreamed it up and wrote it. Like who in our society decides like what trends come in and what music is cool and all of that stuff. It's it's very similar if you think about just like our culture and how stuff grows and becomes popular and becomes iconic. That's kind of how writing works as well. See- it's all from somebody's mind. I like the idea that there's someone out there who kind of writes these worlds into existence. But the big sticking point for me is Neverland. Because Neverland existed when Malcolm, Rumpel's father, was a kid. Because he talks about going there. But we have a very specific date for when Barry sat down and started writing Peter Pan. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to kind of reconcile these two ideas. And, you know, I know the magic hand wave is literally just it's magic but it just it bothers my brain yeah and we could certainly be getting too deep to try and explain these things but there could be some way and maybe the uh, physics professor professors out there would be thinking this (laughs) if you look at it from like multiple dimensions where it's not just necessarily everything is running in complete parallel 
but you get some kind of relativity going on or different things going on where although a world is created at one point in our timeline, that doesn't mean it lines up parallel with other timelines. Neverland, for example, where time really doesn't move at all the same way as it does for us. Or like this fictional London that we're seeing, we don't know exactly how time moves or if it moves really at all. It's just ask the girl who's been locked up in a tower nearly all her life what year it is and she doesn't know. So apparently that tells us that this land is locked in time. I think it might be something like that where there are these different realms, but the time passage is extremely different in each of them and not necessarily parallel, but we might be thinking too hard about this. And I know we're guilty of that very often. Maybe. I think that's one of their points too. Like I think that was part of their, even their presentation of this scene is like, they know we get really caught up in time, I'm sure. Like I'm sure they read like tweets and stuff during the episodes, the writers specifically. Uh, I know that writers of and showrunners of other shows do, and they purposely put stuff in their show from like straight from Twitter. So even the nonchalant of, well, you know, this is just a fictional world and nobody cares what day it is. Like even the nonchalantness of, of Isaac saying that seemed like a very pointed um, comment <laughs> aimed towards us. And it could make sense when you look at things like how he mentioned Cinderella in this. He said a Cinderella story. And I know someone had sent in some feedback saying basically, well, how can he even say that? Because Cinderella's story didn't happen yet. Right. This is before all that. Unless he can see the ending, because there was some kind of reference to his seeing the ending of stories, but he didn't see the ending of this story of Emma's story yet. Well, and we've wondered stuff like that before in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. The doctor in the pilot says, and you discovered all these things by literally falling down a rabbit hole. And we were we were discussing, did falling down a rabbit hole become a term because of Lewis Carroll or did he use that term in his books? So perhaps, uh, well, I know a Cinderella story is more clear cut. It probably came directly from the book, but... That could be a reference to that Cinderella would have existed in this world, the fairy tale that exists in Storybrooke, not so much the Enchanted Forest right. one. I'm still really curious as to how these stories tie back to our understanding of the like the Disney ones that we all know. Because Adam and Eddie have said before that the characters in their universe are aware that they have been popularized. But, you know, I kind of want to know how our world when we think of Cruella, we instantly think of the black and white hair, the obsession with fur, the the coat, all you know, the Dalmatians, all of which somehow or another entered into this story this week. But I really want to know how it got from fictional 1920s London and even the Enchanted Forest to our world, especially if to Disney. <laughs> Isaac is the author and it's not Walt Disney anymore. They said that um... – uh, in his explanation of the authors, it said it started with a guy named Walt, though, right? It, no, it it was even a guy named Walt because the references oh, okay. before Walt were, you know, like Plato and playwrights. I think that this is really where Isaac got his inspiration to start changing the stories. Because you look at what happened in this episode, like going back a couple of scenes, what the mother said to him. Maybe you should write your own story for once instead of leeching off other people's pain. And then his realization 
out at Murray's Club with Cruella. I spend too much time recording life and not enough time living it. And because of this whole thing that happens, I think that's what inspires him to think, I'm done with recording other people's stories and just recording stories. These stories turn out very badly. I want to start writing my own stories and influencing the stories and write my own story or live vicariously through the stories that I write about other people. I agree. I think this is what prompts him to start manipulating the stories that he later records. Although I'm curious as to why he didn't try and manipulate Cruella further. I mean, he clearly had a thing for her by the end. So why not whip out his little notebook and write, you know, Cruella falls desperately in love with Isaac and they live happily ever after, if that's kind of what he wanted. One of the rules of magic, you can't make someone fall in love with you. True. Well, then Isaac finds two powerful sorcerers and three (laughs) genies and... (laughs) (laughs) and then proceeds to have Cruella. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, he seems to have this almost unlimited power once he realizes that he has unlimited power. So if the worst thing he's ever done is point Snow and Charming in the direction of the dragon egg, and because it was a better story, I'm just sort of wondering why he hasn't gone full-on author crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he was stopped. At some point in the future, but did he do anything in between Cruella and Snow White Prince Charming that was a step too far? And, you know, maybe the apprentice was like, no, no, you cannot do this. I'm sure he was doing things because what Aga said is that he started to change things to manipulate. And then at some point he had gone too far. So we don't know how long that went on, but it does seem like it was more than just one incident. Is there a part of the Once Upon a Time story that we know now that was something catastrophic that sent all of these events toward this end that we have, not the end, but the end that we have now, the knowledge that we have now that he could have been orchestrating? It could be all kinds of things. You know, how much control does he have over people? Maybe it was putting the bean, the magic bean in the Blue Fairy's possession so that she could give it to Balefire and I was thus separating. Say the exact same thing. How far back was he affecting these stories? Whom mm-hmm. did he influence? We really can't know. Rumpel seems pretty certain that he was the one who wrote in that villains can't have happy endings and stole happy endings from people like Rumpel, who was not originally a villain, just a coward, not a villain. If he can write himself into other lands, can he rewrite the past? Because you brought up the magic bean, and that's exactly where my mind went when you asked that question is, well, this all starts when Zozo finds Rumpel as a desperate soul and gets him to become the dark one. You know, everything kind of started from that moment, and then when he lost Balefire. So did the author somehow manage to manipulate that? I think he might have manipulated it, but not from the future, because that's one of the other laws of magic that we learned is that you can't change the past. Well, you can if you have a brain, a baby, a heart, (laughs) and a dagger. We have to have all of these exceptions now to these (laughs) laws. Well, and here's another one, you know, moving on here with the conversation. Evil isn't born, it's made. Okay, what about Cruella? Wow. Well, we, we only know her from the age that we saw her. I will point that out. Like, we don't know what happened to her in the first, like, how old do we say she is? Eight? We don't know what happened in the first eight years of her life. Yeah, that's true. But that is a huge debate that exists in our culture. So it makes sense that they're pulling it into Once Upon a Time. I really liked the twist 
this one actually got me as someone who knows all the spoilers. We had no idea <laughs> about this. This was legitimately shocking for all of us. I think it's a very interesting idea that they did, that they sort of set up this whole evil isn't born, it's made for, you know, four and a half seasons or whatever. And then suddenly they give us Cruella, who is, from what we can see, a sociopath. Someone who lacks empathy, who manages to manipulate others by playing on their feelings. That's a sociopath. And this has definitely been a conversation at the forums this week about whether or not we can consider her being born evil or not. Well, but even within that term sociopath, in our society, like in academia and in like the media, there's even a debate about whether that's a born label or a made label. So like the most popular sociopath in fiction, I would say, or one of them is Dexter. Mm -hmm. And we found out, no, he was actually made a sociopath at the age of two or whatever. But that's that's an ongoing debate even in our like even in academics, because they say, you know, it takes three key personality traits to make a psychopath and those key like and that your personality is set in stone by the time you're five. But, you know, what happens between zero and five can still really impact. And there's all you know, there's so many studies on, you know, why humans make the choices that they make and why the same thing can happen to two seemingly identical people and creates two completely different results. So it's I, I'm glad that they're bringing this into the show because it is something. They they do a lot of stuff like that. They bring a lot of, you know, pop culture in. So And it's certainly possible that Cruella was influenced a lot by her mother because her mother uh, while she wasn't evil, she was very controlling and maybe that in combination with Cruella's personality made her rebel in this sense of feeling like the only way she could have freedom was through killing someone. And then once she did it, she thought, Ooh, this is, this is empowering. This is exciting. And that's when she was made into evil. But isn't that a chicken V egg question? Yeah. It really Which is. came first, her yeah. mother being controlling or Cruella showing signs of being, let's say different. I mean, if you're like Aaron's right, Dexter's such a great example because he was sort of turned into this serial killer because of his childhood. But, you know, in some cases that doesn't happen. You're born with something's wrong, you know, in, in the brain. And there are signs, you know, being cold, being cruel to animals, other signs. So we don't know which is her situation. And we don't know what her dad was like. It was her dad, right? That they yeah. said she poisoned her first. So yeah. maybe he wasn't a very nice person. Mm-hmm. Not not that that not that that would justify <laughs> poisoning him, but it might to an eight year old, right? He could have been, you know, like Peter Pan. I know they're debating this a lot in the forums as well. And Jacqueline, what are they pretty much saying there? Since you're the moderator in the forums, I know you keep up with all of these <laughs> conversations. Oh yes. Well, they're pretty much having the same conversation we are. (laughs) Feely brought up a really good point, which is, so the problem I have with this is that Cruella wasn't born as some literal evil demon or monster. She was born a human child. She didn't have something happen to her to cause her to become evil, like some tragic event. She was just, quote, evil. From what we saw, I'd say she was born a sociopath. This is a mental illness that people cannot help. It is not inherently evil. 
Yes, it causes people to lack empathy, which in turn may lead them to commit acts. We would call evil, but we don't deal with people like this by killing them. We treat them if they have not done anything wrong, or we lock them away and treat them if they have committed a crime. And then uh, Musical Feet brought up a good point, which is, to be fair, Cruella may have been born with a disorder, but her mother did her no favors by the way she raised her. Terrorize with dogs? Really? How are you not going to make an already messed up child more messed up with that? Yeah, and whatever other changes that the mother made as a result of the father being dead... You know, Crystal Princess brought up some things that we've seen earlier this season that seem to show that Cruella doesn't necessarily lack empathy. She was very protective of the egg two or three episodes ago, running after Snow and Charming, trying to get them to relinquish it. Um, She was obviously very concerned about Ursula when Ursula ran into Hook. So was it an acting choice on the part of the actress before she knew the backstory or what? Or was it just that she had some kind of selfish gain, some selfish motive in each of these things? And so it looked like Mm -hmm. empathy, but really what was going on was selfishness. Right. And that happens all the time. People, you know, friend someone else seeming to be friendly and really they have some kind of selfish motive. That's true. When then Isaac came back to find Cruella, I think the whole ink spilling on her thing and that's what made her look that way. A little bit Star Wars like, like we said in the initial reactions. <laughs> I think also a little bit disappointing when they let up with this thing of, oh, don't, don't do that because we don't know what will happen if you spill the ink. <laughs> I thought we're going to get to see the ink spill and something really cool is going to happen. No, just changed her hair. And her eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. It gave her the crazy eyebrows. Yeah. Well, some people are theorizing that the reason why that happened though is because Rumple and the author need more ink in present day storybook, so they're maybe going to use her hair, like distill oh, ink yeah. from her hair. <laughs> That's a really good idea because I've been thinking, where are they going to find the ink? And please don't tell me it's squid ink. I- I'm saying that for Jeremy, by the way, since he couldn't be here. <laughs> I'm just thinking that line the spells were in the book, and they're going to have to do a line like that, only like the ink is in her hair. Yeah, I mean, they've distilled memory potion from a strand of hair before. So this would not be outside the realm of possibility for once. Yeah. Well, and true love potion from... Right. Emma was created as the savior by two strands of hair. So that ink is totally coming out of her hair. And we also have a great animated GIF that will be in the show notes (laughs) at oncepodcast.com slash 194 from Disney's version, the animated version of 101 Dalmatians that just perfectly connects everything. And you see that <gasps> it's been hidden this whole time. So you got to go to the show notes to check that out. Oncepodcast.com slash 194. While you're there on oncepodcast.com, we'd love it if you would also consider supporting the podcast to help keep the podcast running because it does cost to do the podcast and we really appreciate the support. So for this episode, I want to thank some people who made this possible. David Newland, Lisa Slack, Tracy Anderson, Daniel Clark, and our 15 backers on Patreon. Thank you very much for your kind donations. It really does help. Every little bit and every big bit helps a lot. So please consider going to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor to find out how you can make a one-time donation, an automatic monthly donation, a per-episode donation, or simply 
click on our link to amazon.com and do your normal shopping there. And then that helps support us as well. It's all at oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. And thank you for your support. Thanks again to David, Lisa, Tracy, Daniel, and our 15 backers on Patreon. Thank you. Moving on to the present storyline in Storybrooke, Cruella and Maleficent have this little run-in. And one of the cool things that we learned from this is that the dragon egg helped Ursula and Cruella keep their age as it was. So now we know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do you think that they really abandoned Lily in the woods? Of course they did. She has to parallel Emma. True. I mean, (laughs) Emma thinks she was found by the side of a road. Lily thinks she was abandoned in the woods. Hashtag parallels. I could see Cruella doing that. But Ursula, maybe not quite going along with it. Here's another parallel for you. Since uh, Isaac is a biblical name, uh, it's all Mm -hmm. of the origins of the name Isaac are from the Bible. It does mean laughter. Uh, That is every bit of research I did pointed to the Bible as its origin. So here's another biblical story is Joseph and his brothers, his brothers put him in this pit and one of the brothers suggested that idea of put him, let's put him in this pit instead of killing him. And then that brother went back to try and let Joseph out. And it ended up that he was sold off into slavery. But I think that that brother is sort of parallel with Ursula, where maybe Ursula and Cruella agreed that, yeah, let's just abandon the baby here in the woods. And then Ursula went back and said, no, I, I can't let this happen. I got to see that this baby is at least left with someone. Maybe that's how it then moved the story along for Lily. Maybe. Speaking of the name Isaac, (laughs) apparently Isaac is also the name of Disney's highest single shareholder and the Marvel CEO. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Maybe that's why they use that name. I've, I've been doing all of this other research like Isaac Newton, Isaac Asimov, Isaac Asimov wrote a lot of science fiction novels <laughs> responsible for like the laws of robotics that we've heard in many <laughs> times before. But I couldn't really see much correlation between those authors and scientists and other famous Isaacs and this Isaac. Well, we have I, the forums have some other stuff. <laughs> um, you brought up Isaac Asimov and the Golden Key um, actually originally pointed to Isaac Asimov and also to Isaac Newton. With Asimov, he has a very big Lost connection, for those of you that watch that television show, because um, Lost had the Valenzetti equation, which was loosely based on Asimov's foundation series, um, which it predicted the end of humanity, thus the numbers 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42, always being transmitted. Um, So that could be a connection. But then there's also Isaac Newton, Because when the casting call went out for the author, the original name was Gorin. And Isaac Newton's wife's maiden name was Susan Elizabeth Gorin. Um, He was not only a mathematician and physicist, but he was also an author and he was into astronomy and alchemy. So that's all from the Golden Key. Why do you think they changed his name in once? You mean from the casting call? Yeah. They almost never give the real name in a casting call. Oh, In all my time doing this, they've almost never (laughs) given us the real name. I mean, Balefire was Jack. 
Oh, I didn't know that. And, you know, Tinkerbell was like Violet, um, which always makes it fun. We have to do our research and really go, <laughs> okay, what does this name really mean in order to figure out what character they're, they're really casting for? Nice. Reason number 500, you should come to the forums. <laughs> Onespodcast.com slash forums. I wonder, with Maleficent turning into the dragon here and then Cruella controlling her, why didn't Cruella use Maleficent to kill the author later on? Or do any of her bidding? Well, maybe she can't uh, order an animal to kill either because technically that would still be her at fault. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I'm glad that Regina broke the news to everyone in Mary Margaret's loft about Zelina instead of trying to keep that a secret from everyone. Yeah, I hope that she remembers that she kind of has, like, it seems like she has the support of everyone, right? The the easiest way to make Zelina a non-issue is for them to all work together to do it. So I think that that was a good, um, a good choice for Regina to make. <laughs> I found this scene to be a little odd. Not because I was shocked that Regina told everybody. I was really glad that they didn't try and drag this out. But nobody seemed surprised. <laughs> I mean, the characters were just like, oh, Zelina's alive. That's shocking. As if at this point, they are even less shocked that dead does not really stay dead than we are. So I, I just thought that scene was a little weird. And it's not really going to be like a plot point to discover that, oh, it's actually Rumpel that killed her. That was covered up before, but now what point is there in revealing that? There's none because they already know Rumpel is double-crossing them and he is uh, betraying their trust and he's turning villain again. And they only saw her right on a video, so maybe they're just thinking, oh yeah, you know, like we've seen Rumpel manipulate things like that before. Hmm. Maybe Zelina could do it too. And maybe that's why they're not shocked is they saw the video saw what happened, and now they're thinking, oh, so she didn't kill herself. She turned into smoke and flew away. I liked seeing Regina and Belle working together. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> yep. What are your thoughts there, Jacqueline? <laughs> well, I mean, you think that the whole Cruella mental disorder caused a riff in this fandom this week. We are looking at Heartgate, okay? <laughs> Heartgate has taken up the past, like... 72 hours of my life on the forums so <laughs> oh, yeah sure working together okay well so i i can guess <laughs> but explain to us heartgate and what are some of the different ideas on this heartgate um and i have to give credit to fee who named it is basically did bell give her consent because the way the scene is written you don't know what regina says next to bell and bell's reaction to Regina, presumably asking for her heart. We don't know if Belle gave the okay for Regina to take her heart and then use her to manipulate and emotionally hurt Rumpel. I think Belle gave her permission. Well, <laughs> I don't think Regina would have done it if she didn't have permission, because I don't think she really? would risk that. Well, I, I don't think she would risk the relationship she's been building with these heroes. To save Robin Hood, her soulmate, her true love? Well... From her evil, twisted sister who's currently, you know, making out with him and making him <laughs> meatloaf? I mean, this is Regina. Like Emma says, she had a hissy fit for 28 years because a 10-year-old spilled a secret. 
And now she's calling Emma a petulant child. Now Emma was a petulant child. We also don't know (laughs) how Regina responded to Rumpel when he gave her that ultimatum of help me turn the savior dark or your loved one dies. Yeah. I don't know. I I think this is her response. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is her response as well. I mean, it's very last season, Hook and Rumpel saying, you hurt my love, I will hurt your love. And these people are still kind of villainous. I think Belle would give her consent. Well, think about this. Was that even Belle's heart? Yes. You're certain? I've Yes. <laughs> this has also been a point of contention this week. The narrative shock isn't that, oh my gosh, it's not Belle's heart. The narrative shock is that Regina has Belle's heart. They couldn't... Yeah show Regina taking Belle's heart because they want to lead up to that moment of shock where Regina walks out into the woods with her heart. That's true. And this was actually spoiled a couple days before this episode because ABC accidentally released it online and they talked about how Regina steals Belle's heart. That's the exact (laughs) word. (laughs) So, yeah. I don't know that Belle gave her consent. And I'm going to quote Keb who is one of our forum's Belle experts, I would say. (laughs) And she says, Belle would never hurt someone, especially Rumpel, with the things that Regina had her say after the kiss. It's not in her nature, and as Regina pointed out, it is in hers. Besides, Rumpel can tell whether a page from a book is real. He'd definitely be able to tell if Belle's heart were a fake. By not showing us how Regina took the heart and by having Belle ask if she could help, it's left ambiguous in Regina's favor. Given their characters, I believe that Regina answered, yes, you can, and then took the heart before Belle could protest. Once she had the heart, of course, she could command Belle at will, which is also why she tells Belle to go home and forget it all. Yeah, so thus leaving Belle with no memory of this whole thing. Yep. And no damaged impressions of Regina. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying Belle gave consent for Regina to say those nasty things. I I don't know that they had a play-by-play discussion before it happened. I might be wrong, but I don't think Regina would have taken her heart without permission. It really seems like everyone is getting the upper hand on Rumpel. Zelina, Maleficent, Bell, the author, everybody. And he's really losing control here. Not only losing his ability to love and have any kind of goodness whatsoever in his piece of coal heart, but he's really losing control. He's been in control so much since the beginning of Once Upon a Time. And I think he's kind of in panic mode where he's making all of these reckless decisions. Yeah, he seems to not really know what his plan is. I mean, he has a plan, but unlike the rumple we've seen in the past where he thought out everything, he keeps getting surprised. Like, why didn't he protect Belle's heart at any point? I mean, we saw Regina wave her hand over Henry's heart so no one could take it back in the Neverland arc. Why didn't Rumple do that? Because given how almost possessive he is about having to protect what is his, whether it's Balefire or Belle or his power... That kind of seems like a logical move. And his motivation here, when he explains this, how he is going to possibly lose the ability to love, makes it seem like this is a moral thing until you consider everything that he's doing along the way and how much he's willing to kill other people and turn Emma dark. 
it's definitely not a moral thing. And I even wonder, is he even telling the truth, really? Yeah, I I think it is almost 100% selfish. It's self-preservation, which I will admit is in line with Rumpel's character. It's always about protecting himself and his power. So what he's doing is pretty amoral, and it's coming from a place of self-concern. There's no hidden goodness here for him, which is sad. Now, speaking of hidden goodness, one of our co-hosts had to drop off for the rest of this conversation. Aaron needed to go and take care of some other things. So special thanks to Aaron for the amount of conversation she was able to contribute here. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us. Follow her on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz, by the way. So let's continue the conversation here. So moving past Heartgate, then let's go back to the cabin. When Isaac is brought in, Gold mentions the ink for the quill again. And again, please tell us it's not squid ink. But this author knows about other authors like Hemingway and Thoreau. I wonder if that means that those other guys aren't just regular writers, but they are actually capital A authors writing these stories, recording these tales, writing of other realms. Possibly, though... I can't think of anything Hemingway and Thoreau wrote that would be considered other realms. True. So, I mean, it it could just be that he's just a very knowledgeable guy, that he really likes books and reading and he likes stories. He likes well-told stories. Yeah, like he was reading Fitzgerald's book, The Great Gatsby, which interestingly Mm -hmm. was never a success while Fitzgerald was alive, but afterward it was heralded as one of the, or actually the greatest American novel of the 20th century. And it's looked back with great respect. And also Hemingway and Thoreau are also looked back as great authors of American era and and certain other eras too and and countries, but as great storytellers and writers. Yep. Maybe they have like writers, Mm -hmm. an author's society. (laughs) Maybe. When Cruella then came in and got to meet the author, that's when he was reading The Great Gatsby. And I couldn't find any connection here, but Jacqueline, you did. Right. The Great Gatsby is actually one of my favorite books. So I was really happy to see him reading it. First, just kind of on the surface, The Great Gatsby does take place during the roaring 1920s, which is the same flapper-filled world we saw in Cruella's fictional 1920s London. But I kind of think there's a bit of a theme that's running through both Once Upon a Time this season and then in The Great Gatsby. And one of the biggest themes in The Great Gatsby is the idea that you can start over. The main character, Jay Gatsby, is constantly trying to recreate the past. He's absolutely convinced that he can have his golden past back with his love, Daisy Buchanan. And... I mean, the the moral of the story in the end is, well, no, you can't. But trying to recapture the past, trying to get essentially his happy ending, it kills him. So Gatsby's devotion to sort of this idea of recapturing the past leads him to covering up the murder that Daisy commits. And in the end, Gatsby is kind of this broken shell of a man who dies. And it's this this idea that you cannot change 
your your present in order to look like your past. And I think that's something that's running through Once Upon a Time right now with all of these villains trying to get their happy ending by changing their story. Which I think they're going to find that maybe they can't actually do or that by trying to do so, something even worse happens. And this last connection that I thought of, it might be a bit of a stretch, but I'll mention it anyway. The Great Gatsby has a lot of symbols in it, and one of them is this massive billboard that overlooks the city of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. And the the billboard is literally just these giant eyeballs. (laughs) And (laughs) it's not incredibly subtle. It's supposed to be the eyes of God that are watching you at all time. And it kind of makes me wonder if the sorcerer, who seems to be sort of a all-seeing, all-powerful kind of entity is watching everybody from someplace as well. Oh, that's a good connection. I All I know about The Great Gatsby is the basic synopsis and the book cover. And every book cover I looked at had those eyes on it. The eyes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They're very famous. Nice connections there. So we'd also love to hear from you if you've read The Great Gatsby and see other connections or any connections with like Hemingway's work or Thoreau's work, please comment on the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 194. It was great to see Pongo again, but man, Pongo was a villain in this episode, at least for a while. (laughs) He growled so much. And this is where it comes to, you know, the typical act five, Henry in danger. (laughs) I'm going to paraphrase Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Henry's in trouble. It must be Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that sort of the crackpot theory we had going at the forums turned out not to be true because a bunch of us had theorized that Pongo was really a human and in love with Cruella. So they were kind of Roger and Anita from the Disney film. I'm glad that they did have Cruella interact with Pongo, though. It it would have felt weird if she hadn't seen the dog at least once. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm glad for that. And we also got more of those typical Cruella de Vil and 101 Dalmatians things like turning the other Dalmatians into her coat, which was horrible, but, you know, great at the same time to fit in. She skinned the dogs. It was really sad. I think it's really ironic that we see Emma angry with everyone except Regina this time. It's complete opposite from the way it's been before, where it was she was at peace with everybody else except Regina. I kind of have a problem with Emma this week. I get that she's mad, and I think that's perfectly okay. But the way she said that she has to depend, with Henry's life in danger, she has to depend on people she can trust, and right now that isn't Snow White and Prince Charming. I think that's taking it a little too far, because Snow and Charming would never hurt Henry. If anything, the story and the revelation about Lily is that they will go to extraordinary lengths to protect their family. So this idea that she suddenly can't trust them with Henry's life, she's throwing a bit of a temper tantrum at this point. Right, yeah. She is being that petulant child. Now, here's a little lesson for everyone. Villains use vertical video. (laughs) That's how we know that Cruella is a true villain. She used vertical video. When you're going to record a video with your smartphone, just turn that smartphone 90 degrees around so that you get a nice widescreen video because our eyes are not built on top of each other. They are built side by side. Think about who else has done vertical video in Once Upon a Time. 
Greg. And was Greg a good guy? No, he wasn't. He was a bad guy. So kids and adults, especially adults, remember, villains use vertical video. If you want to be a hero, turn that camera, get landscape video. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. (laughs) Well, you know, back in episode five of this season, Lily and Emma made a recording using a video camera, and they made sure that they were holding it the right direction. So you, you could be onto something here. Yeah, yeah, very possibly. <laughs> but I, I liked the little thing that Cruella was playing Angry Birds. That was brilliant. <laughs> that was amazing. I laughed so hard. When they bring in some of those pop culture things like that into this, and especially put it with the characters, these fairy tale characters. I think that just, that gives us gold, comedy gold. And I think that's the kind of thing that some of the writers really enjoy because I know Jane Espenson once said in an interview that she loved that she was writing for Snow White and Jiminy Cricket who were talking with each other and maybe a couple other characters. And she said, who does that? But that's what I get to do with Once Upon a Time. It is really a a great place for great stories. I think that how... Emma and Regina are being asked to kill the author for Cruella. Reminds me a little bit, actually, of Lost, where there are these two characters, and the man in black, and Jacob, and spoilers coming for Lost, but Lost has been out long enough. It's okay if we spoil it, I think. I'll I'll keep it a little masked, though. But where, basically, the man in black was looking for a loophole for some way to kill Jacob, and that seems very similar to Cruella figured out her loophole to be able to kill the author. And that makes me question then, does killing the author revert his magic? Or does maybe burning the book or burning what he writes, does that revert his magic? He kept that little paper with him that said that Cruella could no longer harm someone else or kill someone else. He kept that with him every time he showed it to someone. He kept that paper. That's true. But I think that once he puts down on paper something, because something actually fundamentally changes about a person, I don't know that ripping up that piece of paper is going to reverse the magic. You know, because Cruella's sort of being changed. She got magic first and then she was unable to kill And I kind of think the author might have been smart enough or maybe even, you know, to say, don't ever rip up this piece of paper. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. But if he dies, a new author comes about. Yeah. And that's what Gold had even said when confronting Isaac there back in the cabin again. He reminds me a bit of in the Bible, two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah came first, and Elisha was kind of an an apprentice for a little while. And Elisha refused to leave Elijah's side when Elijah knew that he was going to be taken by the Lord. And Elisha had basically said, demanded, or asked God, give me a double portion of Elijah's power. When Elijah was taken, his mantle or his coat was left behind. And when you look at the biblical accounts of the prophet Elisha, he performed twice as many miracles as Elijah did. So he received the double power. And that's what I was thinking of when they referred to the mantle of the author being passed on like that. And I also then wonder, well, if they're going with that kind of parallel, like the Elijah and Elisha parallel, 
does the power of the author role increase every time it's passed on, potentially? And maybe that's why this is the first author who started manipulating stories instead of recording them. I think that's a really good idea. And I'm I'm very interested to see if we will get a new author before the season ends. I, I still want more backstory about this author, but if the way to get that is maybe to get a new one and then he goes through the same training process as Isaac, that would be interesting. And I would like to nominate Henry. Yeah. I know a lot of people want to see Henry being the next author. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually had this thought about if there is no new author because Isaac is still alive, then how did those final pages in Henry's storybook get there? Mm-hmm. Because the end of his storybook shows Emma and the wardrobe and the curse hitting the enchanted forest and all that. But he was already in the book at that point. Right. So did but And we know August didn't add them because Henry had them in the very first couple episodes of the series. And then remember, they burned them in Archie's office. Yeah. So Regina wouldn't know the end of the story. Huh. Maybe it was one of those things where when you fire your employee, someone has to pick up the slack. So the employer sometimes picks up the slack for the employee that was fired. Maybe the sorcerer and the apprentice then tried to correct the stories as best as they could, or at least completed the recording, or maybe they gave it to the fairies. And it goes back to maybe when the fairies said we need to complete our final preparations, maybe that was to quickly add in those stories. Maybe they were tasked with it for a little while. And this kind of connects with how did Rumple get the quill in the first place? Yeah, I've been wondering that too. Did he find it in the sorcerer's house? Because even the key was in the sorcerer's house. Yeah. So maybe the sorcerer and the apprentice collected all the magical items mm-hmm. that an author would need and stored them away until, you know, the time is right and there shall come another or something like that. Right. Now, when the Charmings found Isaac in the cabin and he said the story ends with the savior going dark, I wonder if that's a hint of our season finale cliffhanger. Yeah, I think you don't say something like that unless you intend to see it through. If this entire season has been about Emma's heart and her potential for darkness, I think it would be a big letdown if we didn't see some kind of culmination in that. And that would be a great way, I think, to end the season where Emma is then the villain of season five, villain in some way, and then season five, potentially the last season of Once Upon a Time. But by the way, speaking of season finale, we are working on our plans. We're just trying to finalize details on a venue for our season finale party. The season finale will be on May 10th. It starts at the normal time, 8 p.m., 7 central, but it will be two hours long, so it will go later. Keep that in mind if you do any kind of DVR or need to schedule your life around this. So we hope that you'll be able to join us for a season finale party. Looks like it will be in northern Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati. We'll have those details very soon on exact time and location. And there might be just a small cost involved with that, just primarily to make sure that we get an exact headcount of people who are committed to being there. But we'll have those details very soon on the website at oncepodcast.com. You'll eventually see a banner there and a blog post about it. Or you'll soon be able to visit oncepodcast.com slash party in order to register for that. That link doesn't work yet, but it might 
be working very soon for you to be able to register and let us know that you are definitely coming to that party. And we'd love to see you there at the finale party on May 10th, Sunday evening. Yes, it's Mother's Day. So go ahead, bring your mom, get her into Once Upon a Time, you know, watch, binge, watch all of the seasons of Once Upon a Time and then bring her to the finale party. It'll be a great way to celebrate Mother's Day, I'm sure. But we'll have those details soon at oncepodcast.com. I think Jessica had an interesting point here uh, about the author knowing the end of the story. Jessica Olson said, The author wrote things to protect the world from Cruella and essentially wrote the whole thing about Emma's darkness transferring to Lily. But didn't The Apprentice stop the author at that point? Everything that has happened after that should not be set in stone. So why or how does the author know that the story will end with the savior going dark? That doesn't make sense to me. Is it a sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Everyone is so worried about Emma going dark that it makes people make dumb decisions, which lead to (laughs) Emma pushing people away and hardening her heart. I wonder if just having faith in her that she can choose to be good would be more helpful than than the overprotecting actions or reactions that they have taken. Great points, Jessica. Well, I definitely think that Jessica's right that people should just have faith in Emma, that she can choose her own path. I definitely think that would help. As for how does the author know, though, I think there is something to be said about stories and how they play out across all of time and space. If the author is this really smart guy, very well read from every realm, let's say, there is a pattern to a lot of storytelling, especially when you have an archetype as the savior doesn't matter what savior we're talking about. The story plays out in a lot of the similar methods. There's a pattern. And he could just be speaking from his experience of being a well-read kind of guy and not necessarily have any kind of future knowledge. Yeah, and he could be very good at guessing things. Right. You know, I started this thread a couple weeks ago over at the forums and it generated a lot of conversation about the temptation of Emma Swan and trying to look at Emma and what's happening to her right now by drawing on some biblical allusions such as um, Christ's temptation in the desert. And, you know, they definitely kind of hit that this season, especially with one of their season 4B promos about how there are three ways to tempt a savior and three ways to corrupt the savior. And, you know, if you go and you read some of the the biblical stories, it's pretty much what happens. There are three temptations of Christ. So I, I think he is a very well-read guy that knows how stories play out. Yeah. Well, then we go to this final scene at the edge of a cliff, a nice cliffhanger for this episode. One thing I noticed here is when Cruella died, and I am quite certain that she died, Pongo seemed to be released from her control. So that makes me think that also Maleficent was released from Cruella's control and that both of, well, at least Pongo's being apparently released is a good indication that yes, Cruella is definitely dead. And this time, let's hope dead is dead. I agree. Although I'm going to miss her. This is really surprising. When she was announced, the reaction of everybody was no, do not bring Cruella on this show because we didn't understand how she could possibly work in the Once Upon a Time universe being from the Enchanted Forest or having a connection to the Enchanted Forest. And it turns out she was so far my favorite part of this entire season. 
I really liked her. So I'm sad that she's gone. Do you think Emma is actually turning dark? Yes, but only because I think every human has that potential. And I think after four years of constant battles, constant up and down, losing people, being scared, having Henry kidnapped for the five millionth time, I think it would be weird for her not to turn a little dark. But I also don't think that makes her a straight up villain. Right. And I know Aaron had some strong opinions on this as well, saying that if this is what turns her evil, that is just stupid because, and this is uh, kind of quoting Aaron here, Aaron said that she has no idea Cruella wasn't going to do anything to Henry. And Emma thought she was saving Henry's life. And it's just like if a police officer shoots someone with a toy gun that looks real, they can't, at least legally, they can't be found guilty of a crime because they thought they were preventing the death of someone innocent. And Emma, in some ways, was being a hero. But yes, there's also this thing that they've set up is that heroes don't kill. So according to their own rules of heroes don't kill, it makes it seem like, well, if Emma kills, then that takes her away from the hero side over to the dark side. But I don't get that platitude. Not on this show. Because the very first episode we ever watched, the pilot, you have Prince Charming carrying his daughter in his arms, killing guards in order to get her to that wardrobe. And is anyone going to suddenly say that Prince Charming isn't at least most of a hero? I don't know. I think it's a very strange platitude for them to suddenly be espousing on this show. Right. When, I mean, they fought a war to get their kingdom back from Regina. Are we going to say that soldiers didn't die in this war? One other thing Aaron said here is Aaron's the Buffy the Vampire fan. And she said this does actually remind her a little bit of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Faith, one of the characters there from, I think, season three, uh, accidentally killed someone because she thought it was a vampire. Right. And Faith actually goes dark side, essentially. Mm -hmm. She kind of turns toward villainy at that point um because she's like i don't care that i killed somebody i think emma's gonna be a little bit different i hope and i think that her going dark is a definite thing that is happening and maybe starting to happen because we got that look at the end of this episode and in addition to that look there were the crows in the background the crow caw sound is typically only used around Regina when she's been the evil queen. And we've heard that throughout all of the seasons. And it's even to the point now that when Jenny and I, Jenny, my wife, former co-host, if you've forgotten her already, shame on you, but my beautiful wife, Jenny, uh, there are times when we hear a crow just in real life and we say, Regina, because it's so tied in with evil queen Regina and the crow sounds, and now here, they put that sound effect in. There was no way that was accidentally recorded. They put it in as we see Emma's eyes just looking really evil. I think it is signaling that, yes, Emma is actually going to the dark side. Yeah, and, you know, to kind of go along with that, from the forums, Trudia brought up this interesting point fighting against some of us who were trying to say, no, no, she was just saving Henry. 
And Trudier writes, I don't agree that Cruella's death can be completely placed entirely on saving Henry slash defeating the dangerous villain. Yes, that was certainly a part of her motivation to send Cruella flying. However, a large part was also something Cruella said to her. Cruella starts off by threatening Henry's life, but it isn't until she starts taunting Emma about being the savior that Emma finally snaps and tosses her. Basically, Emma's motto through life prior to season one has been, you have to be your own savior because the world sucks and will try to put you down. Emma's whole identity as the savior goes against everything that she's ever believed. Understandably, she was very reluctant to embrace the title in the first few seasons. And then when she finally started to believe at the very end of the last of the last season, she was absolutely flopped at defeating Zelina. Fast forward to this season with her haphazard control of magic in 4A and the revelation that her parents effectively changed her entire identity because they were afraid that she might be evil. Emma's super upset right now, and at least some of the of that bled into her decision to launch Cruella like a ragdoll. Yeah. Jessica Olson also pointed out that if Emma knew that Cruella couldn't kill and Emma still pushed her off the cliff, that would definitely make sense for Emma going dark. But Emma did this in defense of her family. I think in the next episode, someone needs to tell Emma, you know, Cruella couldn't kill Henry. She's actually incapable of doing so because the author wrote it. And we need to see how that affects Emma. If she gets really guilty and and sad and a little scared for what she's done, then she's still Emma. But she could pull a, you know, a faith to go back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and say, I don't care. Yeah. And Trixie pointed out that the writers have often given us the idea that the people have always had a choice between good and evil and that we see them wrestle with that and Trixie pointed out that we didn't get to see Emma struggle with any kind of choice between well killing her and doing something else or getting Henry back in some other way maybe we'll see more choices in the coming episodes where I think that Emma will probably start choosing the wrong things and we'll see that pattern start to form to some kind of peak And that will be the season finale. Mm, Quite possibly. I know Trixie also thought that Cruella's story arc ended a bit too early. But I don't know. I think this half of the season was starting to get a bit too crowded with villains. So while there were abrupt endings, and Trixie pointed this out too, like Ursula leaving abruptly and Cruella, and we don't know what's going to happen with Maleficent, but they're yeah, kind of knocking out these villains and then they bring in a new villain, Zelina. It's getting a little crowded in here. And I think that for the story that they want to tell some of this, they have to make these certain decisions to move it along a little bit more quickly than we might want to. But at other moments, I think that this could be setting us up for something really interesting with this whole Zelina arc. And we only have three episodes left in the season. And two of those really i say three episodes but two of them are combined that's the two hour season finale so basically we have two episodes left or or three hours of content left so they've got a lot of story to either wrap up quickly or to develop more and be a cliffhanger for season five yeah i agree i think i do kind of agree with trixie that some of these villains have been deposed of a little more swiftly than i would have liked I, for one, don't really need Zelina back. So 
I agree that it's crowded, but I also think that we could have done away with uh, Zelina. But I do kind of wonder what we're building to here because for calling themselves the Queens of Darkness, they haven't been all that dark in Storybrooke in the present day. You know, I mean, they haven't, I mean, Ursula, in my estimation, wasn't even a villain. Yeah. And then, yeah, Cruella's just nutty. Well, yeah, Cruella, we, she couldn't be as much a villain as she wanted right. to be because her story was written that way. It does kind of feel like we've been treading water with the Queens of Darkness a little bit because the real story was the author. So we had to have them as a placeholder, if you will, until we got to the author. And then Mal is obviously the one they really wanted to focus on with Lily. By the way, I misspoke about the number of episodes we have left. Matthew Paul in the chat room uh, just corrected me on that. It's We have four hours of content left. We have this coming Sunday, the Sunday after that, and then the Sunday after that will be May 10th. And that's the two-hour finale. So we have four hours for them to wrap these things up or develop them more. That gives them, I think, more time. I could see them wrapping up one of these arcs and leaving the other one open. So the author changing the villain's happy endings, that I could see them wrapping that up in this season. And Emma's being on the dark side being what they develop further for next season. And maybe this Zelina thing is also wrapped up this season. Yeah, maybe. It's hard for me to speculate fully because I do know all the spoilers. Yeah, that's true. Well, and we will be hearing from those spoilers that you have with Hunter as well in just a little bit. But this is the conclusion then of our discussion about this episode, Sympathy for the DeVille. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please comment on the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 194 or go to the forums at oncepodcast.com slash forums and you can join all kinds of conversations going on there conjectures about future episodes and even talk about some of the spoilers that are being released in their special spoiler sections so you can stay spoiler free if you want to or you can be spoiled as much as you want to it's a great place to hang out Jacqueline's there pretty much all 24 (laughs) 7 sleeping somewhere in there maybe just took an anti-sleeping potion pretty much but check it out if you don't remember anything else all the links and everything are at oncepodcast.com please connect with us on twitter at oncepodcast and i'm daniel j lewis on twitter at the ramen noodle i'm jacqueline and you can follow me on twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87 and jeremy is on twitter at fleegon that's p-h-l-e-g-o-n Aaron is on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. And we'd love to have your feedback on the upcoming episodes of Once Upon a Time. Just make sure that you put the title of the episode in the subject of your email and send that to feedback at oncepodcast.com or call and leave a voicemail at 903-231-2221 or send a voice message through the website at oncepodcast.com. And we can try and incorporate that as much as we can into our future discussions. Special thanks to everyone who makes this podcast possible that we could not do this without you. Our supporters and our great team of volunteers who help us each week. Corbin sorting our feedback, Jack writing our show notes, John Buchanan editing our episodes, Hunter and Jacqueline providing our spoilers. You'll hear those in just a moment. Jacqueline and Matthew Paul moderating the forums, Keb managing our timeline, Alias Scape and Aaron J moderating the chat room, and my fellow co-hosts, Jeremy, Aaron, Hunter, and Jacqueline hosting this podcast. Get the show notes for this and those links and screenshots at oncepodcast.com. 
slash 194. And until next time, enjoy the upper hand while it's still on your wrist. And thanks for listening. Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our sponsors for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be one of them and help keep the podcast running, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor to make a one-time donation, automatic monthly donation, which is what helps us the most, a per-episode donation, or simply do your shopping through Amazon after you click on our link. That's all at oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. And thank you for your support. Hi, Oncers. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. And it's spoiler time for Once Podcast. So we've got Season 4, Episode 19, Lily. Emma's potential for darkness is looming over everyone, but when Emma realizes Maleficent's daughter Lily is in fact her closest friend from her foster care days, she resolves to find Lily and reunite her with her mother. Regina joins forces with Emma, and together they set out to track down Lily and to warn Robin about Zelina. However, neither of them is prepared for the harsh realities they'll encounter in the outside world. Meanwhile, in Storybrooke, Gold faces a crisis involving Belle, and in a foster care flashback, things are looking up for young Emma with her new family until Lily's appearance threatens to destabilize everything. This one's written by Andrew Chambliss and Dana Horgan and directed by Ralph Hemlicker. And we've got a lot of guest stars. Yeah. So we've got Rebecca Matter as Alina, Sean McGuire as Robin, Christy Lang as Maid Marian, Timothy Weber as The Apprentice, Abby Ross as Young Emma, Nicole Munoz as Young Lily, Angus Bruckner as Lily, Sydney Shapiro as Max, Parker Magson as Zach, Cameron Bancroft as Bill, Kendall Cross as Katie, Phil Gardner as Landlord, and Zoe Stewart as Brunette Girl. <laughs> yes, that, girl. <laughs> that is her name in the show. <laughs> yeah, this looks like an interesting episode. I think this is going to be a big one. Oh, I mean, it's getting towards the end. We kind of need some big things to happen. Yeah. So we did get a U.S. promo. Yes, we did. And we only got a U.S. promo no- this week. There's no Canadian. Come on, Canadian, start recording and putting it out there for us. Right. <laughs> um. So the U.S. promo is quite intense. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. It opens with the apprentice talking to what I imagine is the sorcerer. Or Zordon from the Power Rangers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that and- <laughs> was my first thought when I saw that. I'm like, it's Zordon. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, it's a blue mist that's kind of very swirly and sparkly. And it has a deep male voice. And this voice is telling the apprentice that the girls meaning Emma and Lily, um, their fates are entwined as they always have been and always will be. So there's that. And then we we have some stuff from present day where Emma and Regina are obviously going to go find Lily. And they do meet up, Emma and Lily, and it looks like it's going to be quite a showdown. Yes, it does. Emma threatens Lily that if Lily touches her parents, Snow White and Prince Charming, she will end her. Yes. Is it me or does it seem like she's getting a little bit more evil? She's getting kind of evilly. 
And you can see it in the eyes. It, it is. The, the red eyes, the somewhat disheveled hair. She's looking a little rough around the edges. Yeah. So is it me or does it seem interesting how Lily and I guess Robin are going to be in the same kind of area? Like everyone's in New York. Have you noticed Everybody's that? in New York. <laughs> Bellfire, I, Robin, Lily. <laughs> is it me or is that just weird to you? <laughs> They really like the city, apparently. <laughs> it draws magical people there. Yeah, I mean, Lily could be anywhere, considering when she and Emma met, weren't they, like, in the middle of the country somewhere? Like, Yeah, they were in um, middle America, like yeah. Minnesota or something. Okay, so everyone ends up in the same area. But we did get some photos, and it looks like Regina does find Robin. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Considering she told him where to go. <laughs> um. In the one photo, it was kind of strange because the clothes Regina was in didn't look like her own clothes. So Robin looks confused and she looks like she's trying to pull him back like she's just been through something big, from which I'm guessing is Zelina. But she's not in her like pristine mayor clothes. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe something happened and she got wet and she had to put on Zelina's (laughs) clothes or something. There are also a number of shots of them in Granny's. Yes. It's the Charmings and Hook and Regina and Emma. And Maleficent is there. And it looks like she and Emma are having quite an interesting conversation. Yeah. Is she ever going to change her clothes? I don't think so. I think they are going to keep her in that (laughs) 1940s mob outfit until she leaves the show. Uh, Yeah. But then we have other photos, too, at another diner because everyone seems to end up in a diner. And it's of Emma and Regina. And they're both looking in the same direction, and I'm guessing they're both looking over at Lily, who works at the diner. Yes, and apparently she is going by the name Starla. We blew up her name badge on her shirt, and it says Starla. Of course she did. So, <laughs> of course, because, you know, people change their names when they're in hiding. So, And have you gone through and Googled that name yet? I have not, but I'm guessing it's a <laughs> reference to the star tattoo. Those are pretty much the only photos we got. We did get some other behind-the-scene photos from people who were on set when they were shooting that day. And it's pretty much all Regina and Emma with the bug. Yeah. There's nothing big and fun to explain about that. Like, literally, one of the posts was, getting in the car, finally in the car. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's not like they have a lot for that one. Right. But we do have a little script tease. We do. And of course, we're going to reenact I, this for you. And who would you like to be today? Hook oh, I'm, or I'm, Emma? I'm going to be Emma. Okay. So as Hook will go, be careful, Swan. You don't have to worry about me. Which really just translates to we all should probably be worried about Emma. Exactly. And I'm going to say that this takes place when she decides to leave Storybrooke and go find Lily. Yes, I'm sure there will be some sort of Captain Swan goodbye. Yes. So let's move on because we we promised you some juicy fun things this time. Yeah. So Josh Dallas, who of course plays Prince Charming, did give an interview. It was with KTLA. It was your standard interview, but there were a couple things just to point out. Um, First off, he did pretty much say that Once Upon a Time has been renewed for season five. Yay! Now, Adam Horowitz on Twitter said that nothing is official yet. ABC hasn't decided. For them not to renew it would literally not make sense. So, I mean, it would be the weirdest thing I'd ever seen as far as their ratings go. So I'm not really worried about that. And then he did say, though, that they will be starting to film again in July. So they're going to make a decision. They need to make that soon. Right. 
And if Josh is already talking about filming, the actors have probably know what's going on already. Right. So the other thing, though, that I wanted to tease was this idea of a new big bad coming in season five, which, of course, I think most of us expect. There's always a new big bad. Mm-hmm. And he's teasing it as though it's going to be a really big reveal. It's going to sort of change the way we look at the show. It's going to be a really cool big bad. Now, hold on to that because we're going to come back to that when we talk about some filming shots. Okay. So I found in another interview, and this just talks about what we're going to see and how if the author can really grant the villains happy endings. And Kitsis has said that they'll answer that in the two-hour concept episode, which will include pretty much everybody in Storybrooke. So we're also going to find out about Emma and Hook's relationship. It'll be explained further, and it'll become clear where Regina and Robin stand. As for Maleficent, people are hoping for a reunion with Lily, and who will be there. So they most likely will make a reunion, I'm going to guess. By the end of the two hours, one person will be gone forever, as much as they can be on the show, and everyone will be left this season with a big change in condition that will carry over into the next season. Yep. So that's exciting. And then there was another interview, and the creators have pretty much said that no one's coming out of an urn and freezing people this time. So they're not going to a new land. But we're going to end this one as more of like the end of season one where Gold looked up and said magic is coming and everything changed as opposed to the characters moving locations. Yes. But then we have one more really big fun thing to share with you guys. Yeah, we want to talk about some filming shots because they don't know how to shoot indoors for big finales. So (laughs) if you've been paying attention... Or if not, we're pretty much going to tell you how this season ends. Yes. So there isn't a whole lot for episode 420, Mother. Lily, Robin, and Zelina do arrive back into town. There is a reunion between Mal and Lily. And that's really kind of all we have for that episode. But for the two-hour season finale, Operation Mongoose Part 1 and Part 2... It looks like the villains succeed in getting the author to change the book because everybody disappears from Storybrooke except Henry, of course. Of course. We have images of Henry running around town looking for everybody, and the entire town is just empty. Meanwhile, they filmed in the woods. Um, it was very clearly the Enchanted Forest. People were wearing their fairy tale land costumes, and we did have the Evil Queen's carriage on set. And it looks like in rewriting everything, the roles of all our characters have been reversed. Fun. So the villains are now the heroes. Very cool. Yeah. And then we want to talk about how this season ends. And that is going to be somehow. Every- okay, well, first, first, I okay, think go ahead. this all, the, what you just talked about, I think that's all of episode Mongoose part one and part two. I think so, yes. And somehow they're going to be able to switch it back. Somehow they do. I kind of have a theory that maybe Henry is the new author. Okay. And he is going to rewrite the story because no one knows the story better than Henry. Right. So that's that's my little theory. Somehow, though, they all get back to Storybrooke. We're not quite sure how this happens, but Emma has Rumpel's dagger. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. I don't know if it's still Rumpel's dagger. There hasn't been a clear shot of what name is on that dagger. But they are outside Gold Shop. It's Regina and Robin and Hook and Emma, and I believe the Charmings are there as well. And it's a very intense moment. 
There's a big storm brewing. Emma holds up the dagger and says that they have all worked too hard for their happily ever afters, and she stabs herself. Yeah. And I'm assuming after that we are going to fade to black. Well, I did see a little bit more. You mean like the the lightning and the storm that's coming? No, it says Emma and Hook kiss, and at the end she disappears and Snow cries. Yeah. So then I think it fades to black. Then fade to black. Don't freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nobody freak out. This is actually pretty common if you look at hero mythology. This is something that every hero, every savior pretty much has to go through, whether it's Harry Potter or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) All saviors die and are reborn. It's literally part of the hero mythology. And if you do remember, Henry did do that earlier in the season series with the apple tart. He knew what it was and he sacrificed himself for his mom. And Jennifer Morrison on Twitter basically told us all to be looking at hero mythology because if you follow her, you know that she does her book or movie of the week. And during the week that they were filming this finale, her book of the week was Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, one of my very favorite books, in which he lays out what is what he deems the monomyth. And it's a very long series of steps that heroes throughout all of mythology, no matter where you are in the world, pretty much follow. It's a nice little pattern. Um, You can Wikipedia it if you're interested, or we've got an entire thread at the forums devoted to me laying out how Emma has been walking down this monomyth. And so don't worry about the fact that Emma just killed herself. (laughs) She'll be back. Well, she didn't kill herself. Well, we don't know. I mean, they talked about how... She's probably going to be gone. I think she, if she doesn't literally die and is reborn, she metaphorically dies. And yes. she goes to someplace else. And, and season five is about her coming back, probably as the big bad. Yes. So it's either a literal death or it's a metaphorical death. Either one works in the monomyth. So it's okay. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. And I'm expecting a lot of freak out when the episode airs, but. Yes. Now, my only question is, is Emma alone in season five as the big bad? Because this past two weeks ago in the Robin Hood episode, a lot of people pointed out that there was a huge Aladdin poster in the background that the camera focused on for quite a while. And we've all been speculating that Jafar was coming. So I kind of wonder if Emma and Jafar don't meet up at some point. Mm, That sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to talk about in the forums. Yes. So have fun, everyone. Well, I'm Hunter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. Until next time, Oncers. Oh.